So Elder Hanming, um, my internet connection just has been causing me some trouble. So we may have to have some technology uh, issues here. Um, but Barb is also listening in, <clears throat> so she can let me know if, if I disappear from the screen all of a sudden. Um, <clears throat> I just wanted to tell you that because of the opportunity that I had to be a part of Kuchong's beginnings, I have a great deal of affection for this community. And um, the, the sermon that I have today is a difficult one, but just know that it's it's brought to you with a great deal of, of love and affection and concern for this church community. Um, I want to begin with a, a chat question. Um, I've heard this as a part of your tradition. So uh, what is the oldest story of treachery that you know of in history? Um, treachery is kind of a, an act of rebellion against the authorities. What is the oldest story of, of treachery that you know of in history? If you put your answer there on the chat, I'll open my chat window. <clears throat> Cain and Abel, the fall, um, Lucifer rebelling against God, Adam, Adam and Eve. Oh, this is great. We have a good collection of first treacheries. Well, the story that I wanna tell you today is indeed the story of the first garden. And in that story, we know that God had a wonderful design. We know a lot of details about that design that he had. He had a design for a king and a queen uh, who would rule over this garden, expand the garden to fill the whole earth. And every child that was born into this family would be a prince or princess and would grow up to love God and every longing they had would be satisfied in life and in God. That was the design. Now we also know that the new king failed to keep something out of the garden or someone. It was the serpent. In fact, when the serpent did show up, Adam and Eve, the king and queen, they welcomed him. And in fact, they gave their crowns to him. And instead of every birth being a, a great, wonderful celebration, every birth became an agony. And born into the serpent's realm was a new child to be enslaved to his will. The story did not end well. Remember, as we're thinking about stories in the Bible, Bible stories, they're different than human stories. You all being the host of Children's Library, you have a lot of experience with stories. Um, Bible stories are different because in human stories, we use material from our experience, from our imagination, from history. God, when he writes a story, he makes the material for the story. He plans it, he creates it, he orders it, and then he writes the story according to his plan. So um, 
I was just mentioning the second chat question. So if I can have that question up here, where in the Bible does the Garden of Eden, Eden reappear again or appear again? So there are actually a number of answers that you could give to this question. So there isn't a right answer, but I want you to think about this for a moment. Uh, the Garden of Eden reappears in the Bible in different stories. What would be one story where this garden reappears? In the book of Revelation, of course. But is there some place before that that it reappears? Gethsemane. Well, the second story that I'm going to tell you is from another scene where the garden reappears. Of course, after, after uh, the king and queen were banished from the garden, Satan ruled the world. He had control over the world, he controlled the whole earth, and he forced his subjects to worship him. And originally, Satan had, had started a rebellion against God's design and God's plan. But now God starts a rebellion in Satan's controlled world. And so he rescues a people from the control of the serpent and brings them out of Egypt. And he designs a garden for them, a place where they would be safe and secure, and he would live with them and enjoy, they would enjoy fellowship with one another together. So he brings them out of Egypt and he brings them to the land of promise, the place where he was going to establish his presence with them. And as they cross into the land of promise, they have a cleansing ceremony because they are an impure people and they're being brought into God's land. And God appoints Joshua as the one who is going to purify this land because this land is now under the control of the serpent and the serpent has to be tossed out. So Joshua is God's destruction. Man, his name is Achan. Uh, Achan realizes that there is some potential here for his own advancement. And as he's as he's going through the city of Jericho and either taking things into the sanctuary as they were designated or taking things to the fire to be burned, he sees something that attracts his eye and he puts it in his backpack and he walks out of the city. Everybody has backpacks with you know, their trumpets and whatnot in it. So he knows that he can get away with it and he hides it under his tent. Now, the Jer Jericho was the beginning of great blessing that God had in mind for his people, a new design where he would dwell with his people in intimacy and holiness. And you know what? This would disrupt everything. Something that was, uh, that was especially designed for God's own use was taken by a man for himself. And so God judges his people, and they lose the next battle. That story ends a bit better 
And we'll get to that when we come to the children's time uh, at the end of the service a bit more. So I'm going to read the text now for our sermon. And it begins in Acts chapter 4, verses 32. I'm going to read from the screen, but um, please take your Bibles and open to this text because uh, I, I don't have that many slides and we're going to be referring to the text. Agreement. So um, uh, please get your Bibles out as you have the chance. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called the Apostle Barnabas, by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in and they found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Let's pray. Our God, this is a, a difficult text for, for me to preach and a difficult text for your people to hear. And uh, so we ask your, your special blessing on our time. Uh, please be present with us by your spirit that we might um, believe, understand, and have hope, encouragement. God, we ask that you would forgive our sins because we would want to see clearly and we want to hear wonderful things from your word, things of beauty, things of grace, things of hope. So please be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a couple of drawing suggestions. I understand that some of you like to draw while you listen to a sermon. So here are a couple of ideas 
Now, we've just talked about in the story of uh, Achan about uh, a treasure that he had taken from Jericho and put under his tent to secure for himself some advantage. And we will find out that treasure was actually hiding a snake. So you could draw a tent and underneath that, in a little hidden space, you could draw a serpent. And the serpent is laughing because he thinks that he has snuck into God's land and he can poison it right from the beginning and nobody will know, especially God. So you can try that. Another second scene you could draw is a no serpents allowed signboard at the border of Israel because that's what the outcome of the story is. God declares no serpents allowed. This is my land for my people. All right, so there's a couple of ideas for your drawing expertise. Um, let me go to our the outline of what we'll be talking about today. Um, so you, this is a little bit intimidating for me because you all are the hosts of the children's library. You know stories, you read stories all the time. Um, so you know a lot about stories. Well. I know a little bit about stories because I love stories too, but I also know about stories because um, my wife is a third grade teacher and I learned some things about stories in her third, from her third grade class. And uh, this, is, <clears throat> this is kind of a, a structure for a, a basic story. A story, you have to have a setting. And in our case, it's, it's the arrival of a long awaited heavenly society. And in a story, you need a conflict because the conflict carries the story from its beginning to its end. It's, it's the, the, the storyline. Will the society be stillborn? Will it be devoured by, us, by the serpent? Or will it survive? And amazingly, God, when he gives us stories in history, uh, these are real stories. There, 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 is, there is a real drama going on here. Um, to another and what people do has meaning and importance. The stories always, the, the conflict always leads up to a climax. The, the, in this case, the verdict that Christ saves us from evil. And um, that's a, a wonderful way for us to know what the center of a biblical story is because it will be at that at that climax, that moment of climax. And then there's a resolution. How is the story resolved? In this case, great fear came upon all, and a conclusion about what is the the purpose of the story for God's people in history. So let's look at the setting for a moment. Verses chapter four, verse thirty-two to thirty-five. Uh, this has been referred by some to the second Pentecost. You can keep that slide down for just a moment. Uh, we'll come to it in a moment. Um, the, the, this is a kind of a, a repeat of uh, chapter 2, verse 44 and 45, immediately after the, um, the, the Pentecost event. And, um, and in fact, it's, it's a bit of an expansion on that. 
It is the first fruits of this new creation that is brought in by the Holy Spirit. Um, and it's not, it's not, a, it's this new creation, it's not a human development. It's not something that, that man has, has worked on to create and to establish in this world. It is something that has come down, has come down from heaven, uh, has been brought to us by the Holy Spirit. It is something that has come down to us in, in fire. It is, uh, it, is, it is going to change everything. It is going to consume and destroy and reestablish. It's a new society. It's a society that has, has come in from the future. That is a society designed for eternity that now has come into the present. So we, we have to think of this text in the sense of it's like a, a, a dark night in history and there is a lightning flash. And in that lightning flash, everything becomes clear. Wow, this is what the society that God has designed for eternity, it looks like. It's a complete picture. And in just a few words, it's described in such powerful words. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of, this, any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Oneness of heart and soul. That is the, the, the focus here of what, it, what this new creation looks like. It's a, a oneness that is repeatedly comes up in the book of Acts in different places to refer to uh, the, this, uh, the church meeting together. Um, it's at the beginning of our text in verse 32. It also falls at the very, at the, at the very end in, in five, chapter 5, verse 12, just a verse beyond what we read, where it talks about being of one accord. Um, this is the words that are used about this community that has come together. And it's demonstrated uh, with great power. The gospel, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. This is a community that is founded in the resurrection of Jesus. It is by his resurrection that, uh, that this is established. Now there's there's two directions you could go here with trying to understand the nature of this new society. One direction would say that, well, you know, God is really concerned about social issues. And some of us who have social concerns are drawn to that importance of possessions because people, the, this new community is consumed with a different vision for, uh, for their community. It is a vision that is focused on God himself. It is realizing that where your heart is, there your treasure is. And these things are not treasures anymore because they are filled with the spirit and the spirit has reoriented those hearts towards one another. So the important thing to see here in this, in this setting is this is fireworks. This is something dramatic, something new. Uh, something that has been anticipated from all the way from the, when Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden. This is finally arrived, what has been hoped for. And what was even anticipated in our Old Testament reading 
in uh, the year of, of Jubilee. It is a, a deepening of the old covenant. And we see this anticipated by the prophet Jeremiah. If we can go to that slide, I'll read this text for you. In Jeremiah 32, <clears throat> verses 37 to 41. This is, this is what is anticipated in the new covenant. This is what the new covenant looks like, according to the prophets. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger, that is God's people, and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. Now, here I have an asterisk. I want to point you just to a parallel text in Ezekiel, um, where basically this, the same prophecy exists, but in Ezekiel, another verse is added. And when they came, when they and when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And we'll see later why that verse is important. Um, verse 38, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I'll rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. This is what is being fulfilled. This is the, the Luke. The, gospel, the, the writer of Acts, Luke, is telling us uh, Christ is now eternally and inseparably present with his church. This is it. This is what you've been waiting for. So the setting is all glory. It is the establishment of the foundation of this church upon the, the fulfillment of all the anticipations of the Old Testament. But there's a note, you can just feel it. There's a note of danger as well. And we immediately drop into that. Have the next slide, please. Almost immediately, there is a sense of conflict. Will this new society be stillborn? Or will it be devoured by the serpent, this ancient serpent who is always going to be at enmity with the church? So in this, in the conflict now, as we see the story progress, there are three levels of conflict. First of all, there's a conflict we see that the author makes between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias refers to Ananias and Sapphira. Then the conflict deepens and we realize that, yeah, but it's also a conflict between Peter and the apostles and Ananias and Sapphira. And then it deepens further and we realize that, well, actually, the conflict is between God and Satan. It's a proxy war that is going on here uh, in this text. So let's look at the conflict between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira that, that Luke sets up for us in this text. Can I have both panels on there, please? You can see from, you can see by comparing that Luke has set this in such a way that these are parallel texts. And by making them parallel, he's pointing to us a particular 
difference that exists between the two texts. So the things in parallel, sold a field, sold a piece of property. Uh, they, they brought the proceeds to the apostles' feet. What's this different? The difference is that in the case of Barnabas, the money was brought. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, only a part of it was brought. So you already can sense, okay, there is going to be some conflict going on here. What is it going to be about? And um, Luke doesn't give us any moment to, to even um, wait for that. Verse 3, but Peter. So Peter enters the scene as the protagonist. And Peter, this, this scene now is set up as a courtroom scene. It's going to be a courtroom conflict. The apostle's feet represents a certain authority. What sort of authority is it? It's the authority of Christ. It is Christ's own authority that is being demonstrated here on earth. It is Christ who is present in that authority. Peter says, he brings a charge in this courtroom. He brings a charge in the, in the, in the form of four questions. Followed by four questions, it is a verdict. So first question, Ananias. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? I want you to feel the weight of this for a moment. Um, you, can, you can leave that slide just for a second. I'll, I'll signal to you when, when I need it. Um, why don't you feel the weight of this for a second? Imagine yourself uh, being charged with a crime and you walk into a courtroom and uh, the judge enters, all rise, the judge sits down and then you can see, and the, the judge looks over his glasses at you and says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? What? You can see here what's going on. Luke is painting for us a scene of a heavenly courtroom. This is no earthly situation going on here. This is something straight from heaven. God is meeting with his people. There is a complicity with Satan to lie to the Holy Spirit. Now Ananias, in coming, you know, he had to think through this deception a little bit because People generally knew what the property values were around there. So he couldn't, he couldn't fudge this figure too much. Um, you all probably have an idea of property values in Puchong area. Um, and if someone were to show up saying that they had bought a property for, for 50,000 ringgit, and you knew that it was really worth 70,000 ringgit, you would be caught. Ananias had to think about this a little bit. He had to, he was skimming, but it had to be a slim enough skim that he could get through with it. So you can have an idea already of what was meant, what, what Ananias was, was thinking and planning along with his wife. He wanted to give the impression of being filled with the spirit like everyone else. He wanted to give that impression 
So he needed to have that, that margin thin enough to give that impression. But instead of being filled with the spirit, his heart was filled with something completely different. It was filled with Satan. And that's what Peter brings us to focus on. Then he explains how Ananias has broken the law. And you can see this on our slides here in these verses. How has he broken the law? Well, it's not just some ordinary deception. This is a deception that involves a desecration. It involves a devoted thing. And I just want to give you a little bit, or you can go through the, the three parts of that on this slide, where Peter is pointing out what exactly is going on here that is condemning Ananias. Um, go to the next slide. I want to give you just a little window into my own study. Um, chapter 5, verse 3. Um, if you have your Bible open, you can underline these words or highlight it somehow. Uh, to keep back for yourself, to keep back for yourself in verse three. Now that's, it's a, it's a very unusual word that is used there in, in original Greek. It only appears one more time in the New Testament and only appears one time in the Old Testament. And that is from the story that we talked about earlier from the Greek New Testament in Joshua chapter seven, verse one. And the children of Israel committed a great sin and took for themselves, you can, you can see that, see those words there? It's the same word that is used in chapter five, verse three. Took for themselves from the cursed city. And Achan took from the cursed city and the Lord was provoked to anger against the children of Israel. So it's not exactly how we would read it in, in the ESV, but that's where the connection is with that word. And it highlights for us kind of what is going on here in a connection between these two stories. This was a devoted thing that we are talking about in Acts chapter 5, verse 3. What was the devoted thing? What was it? Let's think about that for a moment. Um, in in um, the fourth question, you can take down that slide now if you want. And the fourth question that Peter brings to, uh, to Ananias, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Now, we already know that what has taken place has been Satan has entered into his heart. But now this courtroom scene is saying, no, no, there is a motive here. There is a motive by which Ananias is to be condemned. What is the motive? So Satan has filled your heart for sure, but something else. You have contrived this deed in your own heart. You see, Ananias wants a reputation. He is concerned about how he looks, how he appears on the outside. He wants to be a part of the gang. 
He wants to be a part of the community, those who are known to be filled with the Spirit. And he's not. What is his heart filled with? His heart is filled not with the reputation of God, not with the concern for the community, but the opposite. His heart is filled with his own interests, his own advantage. So here's the, the desecration that occurs in this. Notice that the focus is on the heart. What is going on in the heart of Ananias? So what is the, what is the desecration here? Um, you might be inclined to think that the desecration, the devoted thing, was the gift. But the gift is actually just evidence of what the devoted thing is. The devoted thing is their hearts. It is their whole being belongs to God. Their hearts belong to him. And instead of giving their hearts to God to be filled with the spirit, they have kept that for themselves, for their own advantage. So the conflict here has reached its climax. Um, the law has been broken. The motive has been established. And the climax is in the verdict where Peter says in verse four, you have not lied to man, but to God. Case closed. Charge has been made. Verdict established. But you notice he had said this before, that he had lied to the Holy Spirit. But now he adds a clarification by a negative. You have not lied to man, but to God. Now, by all appearances, Ananias has lied to man because he has brought only a portion intending to portray something else. But in this, in you know, every sin, of course, is a sin against God. Um, but Peter is saying something different than that, something more than that. He is saying that in his position, as he sits as judge in this courtroom, Peter and the apostles are representing God's authority. So actually, Ananias is not lying to them as men. He's lying to them as men who stand in the place of God. Pretty startling. This is not a sin against man, but against God. It's not a sin against Peter as a private individual, but it is capacity representing God. And this is, we see further reinforced in what happens next. The sentencing and the execution. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. What? That should hit us. Like, what kind of courtroom is this where you know, there's an instantaneous sentence, instantaneous judgment. Ananias doesn't say a word. There is no room given for his offense. 
this is, there is not a shred of doubt here with about his guilt, not a shred of doubt about the justice of the sentencing, the severity and the speed of the execution. It suits the crime. He didn't have, he didn't have a single defense. And we can explore this further as we talk in the, uh, in the, the time later in our small groups about how this severity suited the offense that he made. But this is what God's justice looks like. This is, you know, just as we talked about the, the final community of eternity coming into the present, this is the final judgment coming into the present. And where does judgment start? Where does God's judgment start? It starts in the house of God. In a very, in just an instant, Satan has to be deprived of his willing host. This is the climax of the story. This is what it's all leading up to. Satan has not succeeded. God has properly defended his people. Is this really a conflict going on between God and Satan? No, right? We know that's not a real conflict between God and Satan. Satan is a creature, and God has ordered everything according to his purpose. And so we see that even this, this insidious, this desperate attempt, this, uh, uh, this wicked serpent, this, uh, uh, his, his, his ability to, to come and deceive Ananias and Sapphira, even this, achieves the purposes of God for the purpose of God at this time in the foundation of the church is that everyone might fear. And that's the resolution. Great fear came upon all who heard of it in verse five. So we heard about great power, great grace in chapter four, verse 33. And now to add attitude, is great fear. And we see added to this wonderful blessings in the verses that follow. What is this fear? Fear of God's holiness, losing ourselves in the presence of God. God is a consuming fire, a person who dwells in unapproachable light and at the same time cares for his children. This is the kind of fear, 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 as we look at this and think, oh, wow, if God dealt with me according to absolute justice, if there was no repentance, no opportunity, forgiveness of sin, I would have been there. Because not a community of this world. This is a community from heaven, a community of the world to come. Without fear, we can't know grace. Without fear, we can't proclaim grace. This was God's intent to establish at the foundation of his church, fear. Now, interesting things happens in the story because Luke takes it back toward another cycle. It's a literary device, as you know, to bring back, to make stories into a cycle because in that cycle, things are reinforced or clarified or developed. 
And that's what Luke is doing here as a brilliant storyteller. And he has uh, continues the story with the accomplice, with uh, Sapphire. So the stage hands enter, they clear the stage, carry off the body and prepare it for the next scene. And what happens in the next scene? After a few hours, Sapphire shows up and Peter continues with his uh, judgment. And then in verse nine, he says, how is it, this is the sixth question or the fifth question, depending on how you, how you count them. How is it that you have agreed together? Now, what is the development here? The development is that it is not just Ananias acting by himself. He's not a lone rebel in this rebellion. It is actually a full-scale, full-on rebellion that the serpent has organized. And we can't help but putting ourselves in this story at this point because Satan would like to be your Ananias. He would like to be the one who conspires with you to bring about his rebellion against God's purposes and against God's church. If he can convince you that sin can be secret, his job is done. If he can persuade you that sin can be done in such a way that you can have both your reputation and material satisfaction apart from God, if he can convince you that you can look like you're filled with the Holy Spirit and actually host him, he's won. He's won your heart and he's won an entrance into the church community. If he can convince you that you can sin privately, that there are some things that you can just, you can do uh, to satisfy your, your lusts and your desires. Nobody needs to know. If he can convince you of that one fact, he has gained a foothold in the church. Peter said to her, how is, it, how is it that you agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? He's already, we've already known that this is a crime against the spirit. But here we see is a crime against the risen Christ himself. The exalted risen Lord, Lord Jesus Christ himself. And immediately we see the consequence. And here again, there is further drama that Luke brings in the story in verse 10. Immediately she fell down at his feet, dead, and breathed her last, dead. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her dead beside her husband, dead. And Luke again tells us the resolution. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now we heard that verse before, but do you notice a difference? Here it is first the whole 
church. So the, the addition that Luke makes in this verse about the whole church in verse 11 is going to be important. We'll come back to that in a moment. But now to, on to our conclusion. This is, this is, this story is meant to show a crucible of judgment out of which the new covenant community is born. We can go in two directions now in interpreting kind of the central point of the text. Let me just do that just to, just to highlight um, where I think this text is headed in the story of Luke. So on the one hand, you could think, okay, this is, this is the beginning of the decline of the church. Um, you know, this is the beginning of a long, like the church started out wonderfully uh, in chapter two to chapter four, and then chapter five onward is the story of decline as um, sin begins to be discovered in the church. We can't accept that because that doesn't fit with the text. And in fact, immediately after this text, we have the greatest blessing that the church has experienced thus far. And so we can't accept that as being uh, the way that this, the, a way to interpret it. Rather, we need to think of it positively in the sense that the exalted Christ has resolutely and decisively at this foundation of his church, he has protected the church. He has protected the foundation of the church. And it's not just a defensive victory. He has protected the foundation in such a way that truth is established in the foundation of the church. And that fear of God is established in the foundation of the church. Now, it's not accidental, I think, that in, uh, in verse 11, Luke mentions the whole church. This is the first time that Luke, in his writing, whether in his gospel or in Acts, that he has used the word church. And I think that he has done that deliberately in such a way as to show that now at last, the foundation of the church is complete. That this is a, a moment in history where the foundation is established and I am going to call it the church. It is the word that is used in the Old Testament to identify the people of God. It is a foundation of truth. Truth having received the Holy Spirit, the church is a community that lives in communion with the spirit of truth. Truth, it's, it's not a comfortable truth. This is not a comfortable event. It's a truth that is decisive, a truth that is based on the holiness of God, a truth that comes from God, a truth that exists in the fear of God. Truth, now organized as a body of Christ as her head, the church is ruled by Christ through men of truth, through those by those who have been designated as representatives of God. So what is this 
text me in, in terms of application for us today. How should this story affect us? Now, I'm going to be drawing out a few more uh, aspects of this when we talk to the children in a little bit. But let's think about this as we've gone through the story from its setting to its conclusion. First of all, we should be drawn, drawn into the story in its settings because this is, this is our deepest longing is to have this kind of community, a community of safety, a true family. Now, many of us have not come from, many of us have come from families that have not been too great. They have not uh, been model families. They haven't been safe. They haven't been nurturing. They haven't been a place of security and peace. This is your family, my brothers and sisters. This is how it's described here, a true family, a family where Christ is present by his power, a family where Christ is present in his grace, and a family where we fear God. You see, when, 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 our, when our longings are shaped by this, this true family, this anticipation of what it means to uh, to be fulfilled, when this becomes the focus of our longings, then we see the, the bounteous grace that comes to us from God in Christ. We can experience his, his love that is, that is flowing out to us, to welcome us, to, that we might belong to him and belong to one another as a family in which he is the father, a family of which Christ is the elder brother in a family in which we are united, one mind and one spirit. So that's the, that's the setting that, that Luke wants to draw us into so that we can experience the, the drama of this story. Secondly, as we, as we look at the, the conflict as it's escalating, we should be, we should be impressed but with, with gratitude that God did not allow this to pass. God did not allow Ananias and Sapphira to, uh, to, be, to insert themselves into this community. He established a boundary, a boundary in which the serpent could not enter. And our hearts should be filled with gratitude that God did not allow the church to fail. At its very beginning, he did not allow Satan to come in and infect it. We should be filled with gratitude and with trust because the same God is alive today. The same God is alive in your community and he is protecting you. And he is using even the means of, of these words from scripture to protect you. There could be some among us I hate to say, but there could be some among us who are inclined. We're listening to Satan. We're, we're inclined to, to, to the, the honors and the, the privileges and the, the respect of this community and, and our community. And yet we are harboring things in our heart that are taking us away from it. 
there could be some among us, and especially among our leaders, like myself, who are in that position. And we need to, we need to be ready to repent. We need to gather around us those who would, we could trust to, to, to share our lives with, that this might not happen to us. May I not be the cause of failure in the community. May I not be the cause of Satan inserting himself into this community. So it should be a cause for warning for us. Where is your heart? Where is your heart? Your heart is where your treasure is. Where is your treasure? Where is the precious things, the precious, most precious things in your life? Your heart is a devoted thing. It belongs to Jesus. He lays claim to it. It is his. You have no right to it. Let it be his. Let it be consecrated to him. What is precious to you? Is it your reputation? Is it your honor? Is it your future? Is it your, your children? What are those things that are precious to you? They belong to God. Give them to him. He can take care of them. He can take care of your honor. He can take care of your reputation. He can take care of anything that would incline your heart away from giving your heart wholly and completely to Jesus. Now, if, if these things, especially um, reputation, and especially religious reputation, if these things are our treasure, there will inevitably be secret sins that come in. Because we think we can, we can have an exterior of honor and respect and at the same time harbor Satan's work in our heart. It is inevitable. So may it never be. Honor, respect, they belong to God. Yield them to him. And lastly, fear God. Now, it's especially difficult in times of Zoom as we are coming together to worship over Zoom. But when we come together, you're entering into the presence of God as a community. You're entering into his presence, his holy presence. It's hard to, it's hard to experience that reality as much in our time of Zoom. So it takes a special, uh, a special effort and special prayer that we might know this reality that as we even come in, come from different distant places and over you know, these electronic devices that stop working from time to time, we are entering into the very presence of God. You know, we as a church are often very ready to judge the world, judge the world for their standards, for things that are going on in the world. We only have a witness to the world in as much as we are a community identified with God. So the church is first and foremost, in its very foundation, a holy community where Christ lives with his people 
It is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It is such an intimate relation that we enjoy with Christ bound to him that we are made holy by him. And we are obliged to the purity that is associated with Christ himself. Do you not know, said Paul in 1 Corinthians, that you, the church, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you, the church, are that temple. What an incredible obligation that we have to live in live as live in purity, to live in oneness, to live in unity with one another, to live with one heart and one mind. What an incredible obligation it is for our leaders to set this boundary that Satan must not cross in our community. What resource do we have in this incredibly great obligation? Well, the resource is the same as what is built into the foundation of the church. It's the filling of the Holy Spirit. God has given us his Holy Spirit to protect ourselves, to protect our hearts, to protect our community. It is as we continually, constantly, by repentance and faith, as we trust this in the, the spirit indwelling us will accomplish his purpose for our church. Well, let me close in prayer. Reading from Psalm 94, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless, and they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. But, oh God, you do see. So we ask that you would protect your church. We ask that even as we know that you that wolves will arise from even amongst us to devour and to destroy. We ask that you would protect our hearts, first of all, and we ask that you would protect your church. And Lord, it's we can't ask these words without reflecting on our own selves, asking that you would forgive us, that you would make us tender to your love and your grace, that those things would, those, that, that closeness with, with you in Christ would drive us quickly to repentance, would drive us towards one another, that we would be transparent about our hearts, that we would, in the moment of realizing that there is a, a pride of place or of honor, that we would, in that moment, run, run to our brothers and sisters and plead with them to help us. In that moment, when we feel that a secret sin is invading us, invading our hearts and, and claiming peace of our heart, that we would, in that moment, come to you with repentance 
and move towards our brothers and sisters in openness and transparency and ask for help. Oh God, please protect your church. Please protect your hearts, even as you have established this church of yours on a foundation of truth. May truth be the foundation upon which you continue to build your church and build our lives into it. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.